Hello, Duncan Green here on another glorious summer's day in London, uh, where I'm in sort of lockdown, although it's getting a bit easier now. And um, if you look at the kids in the park, um, large parts of the com- uh, population seem to have just given up altogether. But um, we're, we're still trying to maintain some kind of discipline. Um, <clears throat> and I'm here with your uh, weekly roundup of From Poverty to Power posts. Um, Monday was a holiday and I was actually not going to put anything up. But then I came across an absolutely wonderful article by one of my all-time heroes, Robert Chambers, from the Institute of Development Studies. So Robert is getting on now. He's in his probably must be his late 80s. And he's got phenomenal energy and curiosity and is a role model for everybody, I think. Um, And he wrote a piece about his involuntary immersion, as he called it, of 10 weeks as a participant observer in hospital. So this is when Robert goes to hospital for 10 weeks and has a serious operation. He sees this as a learning opportunity. It really is quite extraordinary. So he talked about hospitals as total institutions. And he cited some sources which you know, compare them to prisons, asylums, uh, ships, boarding schools, nunneries, and, the, and, and talked about the psychology of being in one of these total institutions. So he was an inmate. They're known as patients in a hospital um, and they have special names, you know, patients or nuns or whatever. And they are lowers in, to- uh, you know, Robert has this wonderful division of the world into lowers and uppers in any given relationship. And they are definitely lowers and they have uppers uh, looking after them. Doctors, nurses, warders, mother superiors. I mean, what a name is that? Gives it all away. Um Inmates lose their names um, and they're stripped. There's a process of stripping on entry. Their clothes are taken away from them. They're given plastic bracelets. Um, people wee them. They say, yeah, are, did, we, did we sleep well last night as you would normally to a child, in this case to an 80-something professor? Um, you still get treated like a child. Um, and and he's, he described how inmates also learn to cheat. So he managed to smuggle in some vodka in a uh, fizzy water bottle and um, and keep himself perked up with that. Um, the uniforms are important for both lowers and uppers. So when you're stripped, you're then given a patient uniform and doctors. He counted four different ranks of, of uniform in, in his hospital between different kinds of nurse and different kinds of doctor. Um, and he talked about the process of coming in as a marginal lower. So you, when you come in, you get the worst bed um, right by the door you don't get a view and then if you stay low enough and he stayed you know 10 weeks you upgrade and you get better beds by the window and you start to acquire more status amongst the lowers amongst the inmates really interesting and then just as a sort of throwaway remark he called it quite an experience and revealed that he was in there to have an amputation below the knee and he has a grisly description of being able to hear the amputation go on while he listened to Mozart which is um, unforgettable. So, Robert, get well soon. Fantastic post as ever. Uh, I am in awe of, of, of what you do. Next day was uh, a more um, standard links I liked. Um, continuing the theme on humour, we had a few posts, especially one by Pablo Suarez and a cartoon competition. And now David Mwambari and Laura Martin have a post on post-colonial irony and COVID-19 in Africa. And they, um, the irony is that suddenly you have countries in Africa saying, oh, we might have to stop um, uh, European uh, immigration because they are just diseased and can't, 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 they don't have decent medical systems. And, and that turning of the tables has led to quite a upsurge in both humour and a sort of post-colonial um, 
language and a sort of certain degree of schadenfreude uh, having been presented as kind of plague ships for so long many African writers and cartoonists are having good fun with this but we also had uh, on that link so I liked uh, a, a great piece on Sesame Street uh, the history of Sesame Street as a crucial norm shifter within a, within uh, society in America and worldwide and I do think this this role of children's TV, children's literature in shaping and reshaping norms is hugely undervalued. And I, I you know, I often think J.K. Rowling has done more to, um, you know, uh, influence the next generation's norms than any amount of NGO campaigns. And we should recognise that. I'm not sure what we do with it once we recognise it. We don't want to do lots of lame, um, you know, children's literature deliberately designed to shift norms because that probably wouldn't work. But we need to need to at least recognise it. Another link, interesting link in that links I like was um, some research on the World Bank saying the World Bank does these different things. It actually does lots of research itself. Um, you know, at one point it was describing itself as a knowledge bank, but it also loan, lends shed loads of cash, and sometimes ties conditions to that cash. Um, so, so it says you know, it says to a government, "We'll give you the loan, but you have to reform this or do that or whatever." And so the research was saying, well, which works better? Is it Does it work better to just do lots of good quality research and disseminate it? Or does it work better to say you can have money, but you've got to do this? And they came down solidly on the side of research and ideas have more impact in reality than attempting to uh, strong arm people into doing things, which was kind of good to hear, I think. The next, uh, next day, we had a post by Elizabeth Jackson, Chris Roach, Linda Kelly and Lavinia Terrell on Merle. Um, one of the endless variations of monitoring evaluation. In this case, monitoring evaluation, research and learning, Merle. And it was a piece on can Merle be fast enough to help improve the response to COVID-19. Um, and this was one of those posts where I wasn't quite sure, because on one hand it's saying really interesting stuff, but on, another on the other hand it's one of those posts that says, this is what we were saying before COVID, and now because of COVID it's even more true which a lot of advocacy people are doing, and I'm always slightly worried about that tone. However, they did it, and they said, if Merle can become locally led, politically informed and adaptive, then it could become a useful, fast feedback loop way to improve COVID response, find out what's going well, find out what's going wrong, and then adapt accordingly. And I was convinced by that. I mean, I'm, I agree with that view of adaptive management and aid generally, but I thought that I think they did have a genuine case for saying that this could help in the COVID response, which is why I published the blog, even though they were doing a bit of this um, soapbox thing. Um, and they give some nice examples, oral traditions in the Pacific. How do Merle people use that rather than just send around people with, uh, you know, to enumerate things? Um, sending in the anthropologists to understand what on earth is going on in places like the Ebola response. Um, giving up the illusion of control and predictability. Uh, which is kind of at the heart of a lot of more orthodox forms of Mel. Uh, and they have a very nice video of their PowerPoint. It's based on a paper they've published, and they put up the PowerPoint um, of the paper on YouTube and then set it to some really um, inappropriate and weird music from Afro-Celt Sound System, um, which uh, makes it sound like they're all in a club doing a PowerPoint. Very odd. I, I, I recommend you listen to it, if only to listen to the music. Um Next up, we had a piece by me, which was a kind of just a reflection on, you know, everybody is saying, lots of people are saying, because of COVID, 
the world has changed. Um, there will be a transformation of some kind, and it might be a transformation that you agree with, a transformation you're horrified by. Um, there are people on the left and the right and every other political spectrum all seeing transformations, and many people seeing the transformations they want to see. So what I'm concerned with is that you know, we see the world through our filter bubbles. And, and so what we get is a massive confirmation of our pre-existing um, views on how the world needs to change. So we see, you know, if you're in my sort of vaguely progressive bubble, you will see people talking about universal basic income, universal social protection. You will see people, about paying, you know, people talking about paying care workers properly and recognising um, uh, their work, about feminist economics and understanding that the care economy is at the heart of a society. A bunch of things which people are saying all, all the way back or, yeah, uh, and on to Green New Deal, to decarbonisation, to Woo, we don't have to go on planes anymore. Isn't it great? Everybody's on a bike. Um, and I just worry how much of that is us just seeing what we want to see. And how would you know? How would you know if it's something genuine, a weak signal of future transformation? And how would you know if it isn't? And I think one way I thought might be useful was just to say, what, what is genuinely surprising? I want to be surprised by the message and the messenger. So is this something that I've never heard before from this kind of person? Or is it something I've never heard before at all? Because those things kind of escape from confirmation bias and, 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 and maybe may genuine signs of the future. And I put up three which kind of do that. So there's an extraordinary editorial from the Financial Times on 3rd of April talking about inequality, social contracts, the role of the state, could have come straight from, you know, a, a left-wing think tank, but this is the Financial Times we're talking about. A piece from Pope Francis around Easter time, talking about the, making the case for a universal basic wage, as he called it. And then a recent piece from The Economist last week, talking about the need for decarbonisation and sort of serious introduction of carbon taxes. Now, the FT was the only really surprising one. You kind of expect the Pope to be progressive on economic issues. And The Economist has been doing stuff on carbon tax for a while. But it gave a flavour. And I'm hoping that people will send me examples of surprising statements by either influential figures or then there's this whole other piece of what is emerging from the grassroots, which we didn't know or didn't see before COVID-19, which is a kind of another piece of work I'm engaged on. So no, nothing much so far, but, you know, I live in hope. And then... Uh, the last post of the week, I just thought, yeah, this is all too much. We're all working too hard. You know, that initial period of people saying, oh, I'm just sitting around. Now people are saying, oh, I've been on Zoom for six hours. You know, I'm exhausted. And I just thought we'd cut everyone some slack and have a quiz. So there's a Corona quiz following on the Corona cartoon competition and the Corona Vision Song Contest. Um, uh, but it's a Corona quiz, obviously, with a development angle. You know, and is, I made it as easy as I possibly could. So I'm, I'm expecting a lot of people to get full, you know, 100 um, percent things like which president said that he had had a papaya tested positive for coronavirus, which is John Magafuli in Tanzania, um, which country saw an outbreak of monkey gang warfare. And I offered um, uh, options of Washington, D.C., um, the LSE senior con common room and Thailand. And disappointingly, I'm afraid it's Thailand. Um, but monkeys who were living off tourists um, suddenly found their uh, source of food cut off and they went on the rampage. And there's some extraordinary videos of this kind of um, uh, mass fight between different gangs of monkeys, uh, which uh, got very viral, as you can imagine. OK, I'll stop rambling on. Have a lovely weekend and I'll talk to you next week. Bye.